Amen. In lieu of the special gentleman, if you'll put us back on that first verse, I just want to take a look at this, and uh, we're going to have some prayer in just a moment. A little bit of an unconventional start, but hey, it's New Year's, and uh, so gentlemen, if you'll throw that verse, first verse up there, we're not going to sing it, I just want to talk to you about it. The Bible says that, Je- or forgive me, the song says, Jesus said that if I thirst, I should come to him. No one else can satisfy, I should come to him. You know how we're going to have a great year in 2023 with no idea what it holds? And the fact of the matter is, we gather together today in church, we have no idea what this year will hold. But, the, but this song and the scripture tells us that if we thirst, we should come to him. Nobody else is going to satisfy the hopes and dreams of your year and mine except him. Next slide, gentlemen. Jesus said that if I'm weak, I should come to him. No one, this is where I wanted to go, no one else can be my strength. I should come to him. What a blessing it is to have a God who is our strength and that we can anchor our life to him, that there is power in the blood of Jesus and that you and I can be redeemed and be forgiven. That's going to be a big theme this morning in the message uh, that we're going to look at. We're going to be in Ezekiel in in just a little bit. And uh, so if you want to get a head start on finding your way there, it's a a major prophet. It's called a major prophet not because its message is more important than a minor prophet, just because it's a massive book. And Isaiah is a major prophet and uh, Jeremiah is a major prophet. Ezekiel's a major prophet. Then we get to some of the smaller ones we've seen like Malachi or some of those. But we're going to turn there, and, uh, but we're going to start this morning. Normally we'll get in and we'll do some reading and then we'll do some praying, but I'm not going to read out of Ezekiel. We'll be in chapter 37. I'm not going to read out of Ezekiel for a little while. I've got a lot of groundwork, and I don't mean to say that like the sermon will be long, but a large portion. I would say the sermon today is going to be... Somewhere in the the ballpark, 60% introduction. And uh, once we have the introduction and the heartbeat of the book of Ezekiel, we'll be able to make quick application uh, of the truths uh, this morning. But uh, I know you're turning there, but let's go ahead and take a moment. And uh, let's just, there in our seat, I'll lead us in corporate prayer, but you have every right and responsibility to talk to Jesus right there uh, from your seat. The beautiful thing about what Christ did for us is that every one of us has priesthood. And I don't want to get into all the theology of that maybe, but understand that you have just the same access to God that I do. I'm nobody special. I just, God picked uh, me this morning to stand up and share with you what he said, but you can, you have a Bible too. You can open up your Bible and you can go to Ezekiel as well and read the same things that I'm going to read. And you have the same access to God through the Lord Jesus Christ that I do. And so we're going to pray in the new year uh, in some respects. We're going to ask God's blessing upon it and uh, understand, and this is just kind of the reality, trying to set a bit of a stage for the morning's message is We have no idea what 2023 holds. And uh, I'm not going to be morbid, but we have no idea who will be with us in 2024, how God's going to work all the things out, Uh, all the hopes and dreams that you've got and maybe the plans that you've made. We're going to see this morning are really written in sand. But here's what we're going to see. No one else can be my strength. I should come to him. The good news is while my plans are fleeting, fallible, and very, very breakable, uh, Jesus is in charge of it all. One of the best things about Old Testament prophecy, and we, we, we have yet to see the New Testament prophecy follow out in this way, but we will in time. But the Old Testament prophecy, again, proves to us this. We have a God not only we can trust, but who's doing something big, who's doing something that's bigger than our brief moment can understand. And we are a part of that story. We're a part of that narrative. And I don't know if you've ever thought this, hey, it would have been so cool to live in the Bible days. Well, you're living in the Bible days, right? Uh, The other end of this is going to be fulfilled. You are a a New Testament Christian, a part of this beautiful story that led us, again, we led us out of the garden, the kingdom of God, but someday Jesus in his glory is going to lead us back into that kingdom. And we're a part of this ark. And uh, you're in church today for no accident. You're in 
church today to worship that same God that Ezekiel met uh, on the riverbank. Uh, Chebar is the name of the river. You'll see it in a little bit. But, uh, and he met God there. And uh, we're going to learn some things about his meeting with God this morning. So let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on the service. Father, I ask God that you'd guide us today in a special way. I, Lord, I know, I'm sure some folks are tired out there. I'm sure some folks stayed up and things. Um, but God, we're here. And uh, your word is here with us, and your spirit is among us. And you have a desire to speak to your church today in a special way. It's not last week's message, Father. It's this week's uh, principle. It's not scripture from 2,600 years ago, though it is. It's relevant for us today. We as your people, Lord, have promises, and we have a God that we can trust. And so, Lord, I ask God today that you'd bless the reading of your scripture. I pray that you'd bless the preaching of your word. You chose it uh, as foolish as it seems to the world. And uh, maybe there are folks in the room today that think preaching is a little bit foolish. That's okay, Lord. I pray that it would be proved to them, Lord, to be the power of God unto salvation. That through the preaching of the word, their, their lives could be changed, their eternal destination settled, uh, their souls could be saved, as the scripture very clearly tells us. Uh, but Lord, this morning, for those that are yours, Lord, we're going to sit with a man who was yours. We're going to sit with a man whose really life plans and goals and resolutions really, really came to naught. But you had something bigger for him. You had something more eternal in play in his life than he could have ever imagined. If his life had gone exactly the way he wanted it to, it would never have yielded the power that you allowed his life and the prophecy of, uh, that you gave him to unfold. And even to us here, these many centuries later, God, still drawing hope out of, out of the brokenness you brought this man into. And Lord, I just thank you for the scripture and how real and tangible it can be to our lives and our hearts. And I pray, God, that in a powerful and a special way that you meet with us, Lord, I want to pray for your church this morning, God. We're getting ready to walk into the new year. And Father, last year there was burdens. There were victories, no doubt. There were great blessings. But Father, there were heartbreaks. There were difficulties. There were moments that we would have rewritten. Um, but you've been good through it all. And Lord, on, on the large scale of things, it's a, another point on the plotted line of, of your eternal purpose to bring in your kingdom and your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And so, Father, as we move forward as a church this year, may we move forward, God, with excitement, but also with understanding that we have faith in God and not faith in faith. You, as God, hold all of the authority, and you could change the script, and you can change the direction, and you can change the plan, and we ought to submit to that shepherding uh, that you have every right to. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that just this year be a great year. I'm not, I'm not going to be foolish today and ask that it be a perfect year or that it would be even better than 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 it could be. Lord, I, I, I don't want to go in with any expectations except that you are God. You are God alone. You are the strength of your people. You are the hope and direction of your, your children. You are the shepherd of your flock. And God, may we as your children submit to that holy. And Father, all the blessings that come with being in your will, may we rejoice in them. But all the burdens that you bring in, you choose and you usher in. God, may we have the grace and strength to accept and follow on and that you're doing something bigger than we see in the immediate moment. So God bless this church, Lord. I, I, I believe I've got the, the, the track and the path for the next year, Lord. And I pray that we as a church would be able to follow that as closely as we can. Lord, we've seen so many years in a row that you've just had your will and way in the, in the theme and in the plan and the process. And, and yet, Father, we also know that you have the, the, the liberty to alter that and to change it. And so, Lord, we just come in today, this morning, with submitted hearts, I think, and uh, hearts that are excited uh, but hearts that also understand that our plans are, are really written in sand. 
So God, would you guide your people? Would you bless them in a special way? This, may this be a year of good health, if you, if you choose, but it also might not be. May it be a year of prosperity, but God, we also know that it might not be. That might not be what we need. You may change that uh, according to your will, and may we just have the grace to accept what you change and what you do. Lord, we love you. We trust you. We lean on you. I, I hope I can say that corporately, um, that we trust you and love you and that we can lean on you. But God, would you just have your will and way in the lives, in the marriages of, of the people present and the people in our, our congregation? Father, would you help us to be salt and light this year? We have no idea, God. You could come back before tomorrow. You could come back before 2024. And Father, may we be faithful, Lord, to be the salt and light that you have placed the church here to be. It is our responsibility, God, to go into the world and to reach the world and to, to plant churches and to do missions work and to love the, uh, the lost and to, to help the, the poor and the broken and the, the widows and the fatherless and all the, the, the commissions and commands that you have given the church to carry out. May we be the church. And God, I ask that you would just guide us in a special way this morning as we read your word, as we lean into the scriptures, as we create uh, or just kind of bring forth some illustrations, some understandings. And most importantly, as we read the scripture, may it be just anointed with your spirit. May there be a special touch upon the service today. Thank you for those who are present, God, and, and chose whether through fatigue or just by decision. They just decided to come this morning, and we're thankful for them. We pray that the message, Lord, would feed their soul. Um, I, again, don't have any intention, you know, Lord, to be entertaining or funny. I just desire to, to be a conduit through which your word can be read and the sense of it can be given and your people can be guided by the Spirit as they look into the passages of Scripture that you gave 26, 2400 years ago. May we trust them as relevant for today and may we learn the lessons you were teaching him that we could lean on and that we could appropriate into our lives today, um, 2023. God bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning, before we get into the text, uh, this evening we get to move two rocks, and uh, that will leave three uh, on, the, on the mortgage. So for those just joining us, that's our, our mortgage, our debt retirement. We've been working diligently toward paying off. If you're here with us, we are not asking you to give. In fact, I would encourage you, uh, you know, unless the Lord really reveals it to you, this is our church family's project. We've been really focusing on this. And uh, so we will be within $3,000 of paying off the mortgage for this whole property. And uh, so keep giving our church family, and uh, what a blessing it is. I'm hopeful to be able to uh, move the mortgage burning ceremony up a little bit. We kind of planned for it in, in March, but we're looking forward to doing that. So let me start by saying Ezekiel chapter 37. I hope that you're there. We're going to do a little bit of background. We're going to get you to what's happening in Ezekiel 37, but that's going to take us a little bit of background, a little bit of building. Some of the background we already know. Uh, we've been in a series um, during Christmas in Isaiah and all the Christmas prophecies foretelling uh, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of a child. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Really unpacking all of those prophecies that are dated. Now, this is important. Kind of put this in your pocket. We'll come back to it. Isaiah's day was 700 BC, 700 years before Jesus came. Um, we're going to jump into Ezekiel, which happens a little bit later, a little bit closer to the time of Christ. We'll talk about that in just a second. But let me start by saying Happy New Year. Uh, I hope that you did not stay up too late. And I asked my Sunday school class, I said, hey, this is the few, the proud, the responsible adults that went to bed before midnight. And then I, that was just my assumption. Then I asked them for a show of hands, and nearly half of all of our, our senior saints were like, oh, we stayed up till midnight. I don't know why, um, but uh, that's pretty crazy to me. Now, let me ask, how many of you did not stay up till midnight? Raise your hand. Those are my people. All right, those are my people. How many of you went to bed before 10 o'clock? Raise your hand. See, these are more my people. How many went to bed before 9.30? 
There, yeah, there's like five of us. That's when I went to bed. Amen. Praise the Lord. You know why? Because I'm excited about church. I'm revved up. And I think you can be excited about church and stay up till one o'clock. I just want you to pay attention, okay? Uh, be intentional because you're probably a little more fatigued than I am. Uh, new Year has traditionally been a day, uh, or rather the New Year, New Year's Day, has traditionally been a day of excitement and hope. Um, especially, and, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but especially to lost people. It's traditionally been a day of excitement and hope. And by this, it, it kind of, in a traditional sense, kind of symbolizes the start over of something. There's a, 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 you know, a hope that we can do this next year better and, and we can make progress and maybe that's financial or we can make progress in our career or we can lose the four pounds, 15 pounds we gained during the Christmas week. Uh, there's always this kind of, this hopeful excitement about New Year's Day that we can make improvements in our life, in our home. We're going to pay off this. We're going to get out of debt, all these things. But one of the things that, again, this is just kind of my observation. I try to be a student of, of the world around me, of culture. One of the things I've noticed over the last few years in my observation is that really New Year's Day has lost a little bit of its promise power that things are going to be awesome. You know, you rewind to, to when I was a kid, you know, I would think New Year's Day, man, let's go, it's exciting. But I, I think over the last couple of years, it's, it's lost some of that, that promise that, hey, this year's going to be awesome. Okay, and let me kind of prove it this way. Rewind, if you will, and I know you don't necessarily want to, but I'm going to make you, rewind your mind back to the end of 2020. 2020, the year of the, the, the uh, toilet paper famine, right? Uh, the year of COVID. And you remember sliding out of 2020, you're like, 2021, going to be the best year ever. We walked in with so much confidence, expectations, you know, because honestly, you think oh, it can't get any worse, right? It's not going to get any worse. And, and then we think, well, it's going to be different. And then all of a sudden, 2021 really wasn't all that different. And this new beginning of the new year kind of lost its promise because honestly, not much changed between 2020 and 2021. And then we reached this last year, 2020. And I'm not saying necessarily that 2020 was markedly worse or even markedly better. I'm simply saying that fundamentally between the last few years, not much has changed. So from December the 31st to January the 1st, what really is all that different? Think about it this morning, right? Uh, 11 hours, 11 and a half hours ago, it was 2022. Now, a good solid 11 and a half hours later, it's 2023. What's the difference? Well, it's Sunday. It's not Saturday. And fundamentally, that, that's why I don't stay up. I'm thinking, okay, well, if today's Saturday and tomorrow's New Year, you know what's different? I have to put a new calendar up in my office. I have to get a new planner and start all over again. And again, fundamentally, there's not much that changed. And here's the point I'm driving at. When it comes to New Year's Day, there is no magic wand. There is no magic promise of things being markedly better or even markedly worse. A simple turning of the page on a calendar does not wash away the hardships or the realities that you are currently living in. If you went to sleep last night with debt, you probably woke up this morning with debt. If you went to sleep last night with four or five pounds from Christmas, you probably woke up with four or five pounds from Christmas. January 1st can't make you a better person. January 1st cannot make you new. And here is where I'm going. There is only one person who can change you to a better you. There is only one source of newness, and that is the new life found in Jesus Christ. A calendar can plan and a calendar can promise that everything will be better or everything will make sense or we can make progress, but really no full revolution around the sun. There is no magic thing that happens as the earth finishes its 
kind of uh, spinning around that, that sun. But there is a God, excuse me, who is above all that wants to guide us into the new year. My favorite part about being guided by God into the new year versus finding some magical power in, oh, thank God, 2022 is over, and now we're in 2023. My favorite part about being guided by God is that he knows what will actually happen next year. He knows what's actually going to happen come March of 2023. He knows what's on your calendar and what will be in your bank account come July the 14th. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And uh, I I brought up here this morning, I'll kind of illustrate it. This is, and or I should say, was my calendar planner. And uh, I I did some, I looked at it this morning, I did some planning in, uh, or, or some calendar planning, I think for a sermon series back in 2019. And then a little bit into 2020. And one of the things that I noticed is I wrote down all these plans for 2020. The fact of the matter is none of them happened. Nothing that we planned, right? You remember our church theme, those of you who are present? Simplify. Yeah, we were. We were about to get real simple uh, in church. We were about to get so simple, we didn't have to turn the air conditioner on. It was just five of us in the building. And you guys were outside in your cars. And, and, and really, the, 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 what I'm trying to kind of get at is that this planner, I, I am a planner. I, I'm, not, I'm not a planner, but I'm a planner by nature. I, I enjoy kind of mapping things out and, uh, you know, trying to have vision and kind of looking ahead and trying to plan this and trying to plan that and kind of putting it on paper. But like I've said a few times, the, the last three years of life and ministry have really taught us that this thing is really breakable. This thing is super fragile. And again, if you're like me, and I think some of you are, at least in this respect, that you like to plan. You like to know what's coming. You don't like surprises. Uh, you want to be able to map it out and, you know, track it out. And here's the financial, you know, uh, trajectory. And here's the family plans. And here's the five-year plan and the 10-year plan. And like I said, if anything we've learned over the last few years is that this doesn't offer us as much hope as we thought. This doesn't offer us as much stability as perhaps we hope for. And so my, my question as we're kind of getting to uh, Ezekiel's book is, Why would we, we do it naturally, I don't know if we do it on purpose, but we got to be intentional not to. Why would we root hope in a calendar? Why would we root some magical, foolish idea that just because it's 2023, really, it's just Sunday after Saturday. It's just the first after the 31st. You know how many times the first comes after the last day of the month? 12 times a year, okay? I almost said the first after the 31st, but then I don't have to do math and figure out how many months have 31 days. And then February's got, somebody's doing the weird trick you learned in elementary school. Regardless, it's no different than yesterday. But God has full view of 2023. And he possesses full authority over exactly what does and does not happen. And here's the beauty, and this is what we're going to learn in Ezekiel, is that he has a desire to guide us through. And my goal is not to dash your hopes for having a great year. Um, I did see a meme About 2023, it said this. I'll just read it for you. It says, uh, it was 2023. It said, no one claim this year is your year. We're all going to walk in real slow, be quiet, and don't touch anything. And we'll see what happens. I'm simply, again, I'm not trying to dash your hope. I'm simply trying to point out that it's hard to have hope based solely on arbitrary changing calendars. Because that is not where hope has ever been found. 
in our best laid plans, in the trajectory we set for our life, in the financial goals that we have. And there's a Bible character. There's actually a lot of Bible characters who'd fit this bill, but specifically I've been wanting to get to Ezekiel. There's a Bible character, a prophet, who can identify with that exact sentiment. Uh, And we're going to learn from him. Like I said, his name is Ezekiel. It's an incredible book of the Bible. It's kind of an obscure book. It's not necessarily one that you'd go to a lot. Um, You know, there's a flying bread roll and a bunch of visions and there's a wheel and there's a bunch of kind of maybe obscure things within that book uh, that might not totally make sense. But here, here's kind of where, where this book opens. As you open the first page, and you don't have to go there, but you can kind of think with me or mark it down in your notes. Uh, he opens the book, the book opens rather, in Ezekiel, with him sitting on the banks of an irrigation ditch. It's called the Chibar River. And basically it just comes off of the Euphrates and brings some water into uh, Babylon at that particular time. And he's, he's sitting at this river bank, and we don't know why, perhaps because Jews had to bathe in moving water to pray. That's kind of how they viewed things. They have to go to a place where li- they call it living water, would be moving and they'd bathe and then they'd go to prayer. And so perhaps most suggested would be that he's there trying to have some prayer with God. And it's on a very specific day, but he's outside of this kind of, I can't say it's a refugee camp, but it's, it's kind of structured the same. It's not a refugee camp as much as it's a captive camp. They have been occupied. They've been abducted from their nation. We'll talk more about that in a second. But he's sitting outside of this, we'll call it just a refugee camp for sake of visual. And he's sitting by this river. He's a young man. Um, rewind, for, leave him there at the river and go back about two years. He's 28 or 29 years old, and he's there in Jerusalem. Uh, he's in the final days of Jeremiah's prophecy. Jeremiah is a prophet in Judah. Uh, Isaiah was the prophet before him. So about 100 years has eclipsed from the, the passing off of Isaiah. Jeremiah has come. At the very end of Jeremiah's day, here we find this young man, Ezekiel, training for the priesthood training to make sacrifice and worship in the temple. And unfortunately, not unfortunately, as, as prepared and planned and prophesied by God, the prophecies of Jeremiah and Isaiah come true in Ezekiel's day. Babylon comes. Now, again, if you haven't been tracking with us, I'm trying to give you as much as maybe you would need. But for those who've been here, you know what all that means. Isaiah has been telling them it's coming. Jeremiah, we didn't even get to him this year. But he's been telling them they are coming. And Babylon indeed does come and desolates, devastates Judah and Jerusalem. In fact, during Ezekiel's captivity, Babylon's going to come back and and absolutely destroy the temple where he's now, as a 28, 29-year-old man, training to be a priest in that city, waiting till his 30th birthday to be installed as a priest. He has a pretty clear kind of, you could say, a life plan or a life path kind of laid out. But by the time we meet him, we don't see him in Jeremiah's prophecies, just an obscure young man. But by the time we meet him in, by the Chibar River in what we would know as the Iraqi desert of today, by the time we meet him outside of the city of Babylon, outside of his Jewish refugee camp, sitting by this irrigation ditch, he is 30 years old. In fact, verse chapter 1 opens up suggesting, it certainly appears that it's Ezekiel's 30th birthday, the day he would have been installed as a priest. And I want you to kind of put yourselves in the heart and mind of this young man, sitting in the middle of this desert, hundreds of miles away from home, no longer a free man, no longer training for a priesthood. In fact, God's going to reveal to him he'll never be that priest over there because that temple's going to be destroyed. He's going to spend the rest of his life in captivity. We don't know when he dies. We just know when his ministry ends about 23 years later from the opening of the book. But he's hundreds of miles away from the temple, hundreds of miles away from his schooling and preparation, hundreds of miles away from his family, hundreds of miles away from all of his plans for this. Follow me here. New year of living. He's in exile. He's a prisoner in the the land of Babylon. 
This is the reality, however, that God has been warning about to his people for over 100 years. Isaiah's entire ministry was about saying, you need to stop. You need to turn. God's going to judge you. God already judged the northern tribes. He's going to judge you, and nobody listens. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, comes on his heels and promises, if you don't do this, God's going to judge you. In fact, partway through Jeremiah's ministry, God tells Jeremiah, don't pray for the good of these people any longer. It's over. I'm going to judge these people now. And this is the reality that we find this man in. His plans, a distant memory, all his maybe resolutions, if you will, are broken. His future's very unsure. And it's in this moment that God shows up and speaks to him and begins to to share with uh, Ezekiel God's plans for the nation of Israel. God's plans for Ezekiel. His life path is going to be dramatically different than what he had prepared for it to be. And the book unfolds, kind of a bigger picture of the whole book, unfolds in successive prophecies. And some of them are obscure, and some of them are illustrations of God's view of the nation of Israel. And, and God ends up taking Ezekiel's wife from him. She dies. There's all kinds of things that Ezekiel's supposed to do to illustrate how forsaken the children of Israel are going to be in their captivity. It's not dissimilar from Isaiah's message. For the first 30-some-odd chapters, 33 chapters or so, uh, Ezekiel spends his whole prophecy pronouncing judgment, pronouncing judgment on the exiles. Because there are some in those days, and we don't have time to read it, but there are some in those days that were believing that, hey, there's only a short time we're going to go back and worship because we deserve to be. We're God's people. He couldn't judge us. The temple's going to be fine. Well, Ezekiel's message is very opposite of that. It's not going to be fine. It's not going to be okay. The temple's going to be destroyed. You're not going back until 70 years, and there are many Jews who stayed much longer than that. But he pronounces judgment on the exiles. And he pronounces judgment on Jerusalem, and Jerusalem does indeed fall. There's someone toward the end of the, I think it's 27, I'm not totally sure, but somewhere there in the late 20s chapter, someone comes from Jerusalem and says, your, your prophecy was true, the, the, the temple did fall, and so forth. And he also spent some time pronouncing judgment on the nations around him. And on a surface level, it's a little bit, of a discomforting vantage point to stand and look at God at. So if you look at God through the lens of the first 30 chapters of 33 chapters of Ezekiel, you're going to find a God who is dealing justly, firmly with his people. But it's a people he has warned. It's a people he has pled with. It's a people who he has sent prophets to. It's a people who he's tried to stop and tried to spare and tried to call back away from the edge. But by the time we reach, like I said, that point in Jeremiah's ministry and definitely into Ezekiel's day, they have crossed the line of no return. And judgment is the only way that God can bring his people back to him. The only way he's going to be able to redeem them. Now, quick sidebar. We're going to come back to this truth. This is a part of the big picture. Put yourself in the timeline, right? So Ezekiel's day... We're only about 500 and maybe 400. I have the date here in my notes in just a second. But we're not far from the coming of Christ. But here we are in Jerusalem. They're living paganly. They're offering their children. Jeremiah indicts the children of Israel and says that you're worse than the nations around you. You have the living God inside of your camp, inside of your temple, and you're worse than the pagan nations around you. And so God has to judge them. But it's all a part of this bigger redemptive plan. He's going to remove them and unsettle them for the goal of bringing them back and sending them their Messiah. Now, from our vantage point of history, we know this doesn't work. They're going to end up back in Jerusalem just as pagan as they ever were. Christ is going to come. They're going to crucify him. 
Okay? But his redemption story is unchanged by all of that. So in the first 33 chapters or so, you find a God who's dealing justly. But then you get to about chapter 34. We won't go back there. But in chapter 34, you begin to see God's message of hope and grace. You begin to see this bigger plan. It's the first few chapters or the first 30 chapters are very zoomed in on God's judgment. And then it's almost like Ezekiel hears from God this big stepped back picture. That God says, yes, I'm judging, but I'm judging for redemption. I'm, I'm, I'm removing them and unseating them for a plan of redemption excuse me and i know that's a lot of kind of setup but kind of think with me um, when you're dealing with any book of the bible especially when it comes to an old testament prophet it's important to understand why the prophecy was given and it wasn't so much and this is important this might be contradictory to your understanding of prophecy when you look in the old testament and our day as well God isn't giving them prophecy so much so that they can sit there, scrutinize it, unravel it, and figure out exactly how it was all going to play out. They had no way of knowing. They had no way of understanding exactly how all of this was going to unfold. He didn't give it to them. The goal of prophecy wasn't so that they could reason out all the prophecies and understand exactly what was going to come and when it was going to come. He didn't give it to them so that they could figure out all of the details. Here's what he did. God gave Ezekiel prophecy, and he gives us to today, not through the scripture, God gives prophecy so that these people in Babylon would know that God isn't done, that God is still working, that God still had a plan. Could they, under, could they have possibly unpacked everything in Ezekiel's prophecy and known this is what's going to happen, he's going to come out this way? There are some things, we, Wednesday night, kind of pair the messages together. Wednesday night, there are some things we've been talking about that God did very specifically give them. You will know the Messiah is cut off in this year. You will know the Messiah comes this way. But for the broad scope of prophecy, God gives prophecy so we know this. I'm still working. I'm still doing something. Put that in our context. Let's appropriate that to us today in 2023. We have a bunch of promises. We're still waiting in the middle. We've been talking about that a lot the last few weeks. We have promises in the New Testament and in the Old Testament that God hasn't fulfilled yet. And here's what God's trying to say. He's not so much telling us so we can figure out every single nuanced detail and know exactly what comes when. He's giving it to us to know, I am returning. It, you may feel alone. You may feel, like the, you may feel like the wheels of the train have stopped, but I promise you, I'm doing something big. Now, we can look back and say, wow, Ezekiel, you guys didn't see all that was going to happen, but we can see it now. And someday in heaven, we'll look back and say, man, I can see. You remember how difficult 2020 was? Look at how God worked that into his plan. Look at how God did the big picture. One of the biggest themes of the book of Ecclesiastes, or forgive me, uh, of Ezekiel, is this. One of the biggest themes of the whole book is that God actually shows up in Babylon. That's a primary theme here. Ezekiel, in the beginning, in the very beginning, few, few chapters, he's going to have this vision of God's chariot leaving Jerusalem, which is where God dwelt in a Jewish understanding, and he's going to leave and he's going to follow the children of Israel into Babylonian captivity, which is kind of hard to wrap your Jewish brain around because in Ezekiel, he's training for the, for the priesthood. He's training to make sacrifice because Jerusalem is where God dwells. Even to this day, they think, Jews think God dwells in Jerusalem, nowhere else. Well, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The Bible says the earth is his footstool. And so Jeremiah, training, growing up, preparing for this priesthood to serve God there in Jerusalem, he ends up on the Chebar River out in the Iraqi desert, and he's praying, and God shows up there. And the theme that we're going to realize is that God dwells with his people. God goes with his people even when they go off script. In Ezekiel's mind, he's thinking, no, God's not out here. I need to get back to Jerusalem. I need to get back to the priesthood. Listen to me. Let's, let's kind of find ourselves. I need to get back to my plans. I need to get back to 2016. I need to get back to what life was before this major life change. And what we learn 
is this book teaches us in a big way that God went with his people into captivity, into their captivity. And wherever God's people go, God goes with them. And he's working in them. And he's, he's building circumstances around their lives. And he's orchestrating every single detail of the hardship they find themselves in. And prophecy after prophecy, God keeps telling Ezekiel, God keeps telling him uh, that through the unfolding uh, uh, that's happening around them, he, he keeps saying, he keeps promising them, the whole world shall know that I am God. In fact, the end of chapter 37, I believe, tells us that the whole world would know that I am God. And even, through, even though nothing is happening the way Israel or Ezekiel or their calendar planning meeting kind of mapped it out, God is still the one in Ezekiel's life steering the ship. And that's important as we get into these prophecies. In chapter 34, we kind of turn that page. By the time we reach chapter 37, a handful of prophetic and somewhat obscure events happen. There's two sticks that join to one. The primary thing that happens in Ezekiel chapter 37, uh, it's an illustrative prophecy. God's trying to teach Ezekiel. He's trying to teach us something. He takes him to this valley. And you might, have, might be relatively familiar with this. He takes him to this valley, and there's a valley full of dead dry bones. They're, they're super-duper dry bones. And he asks them, very kind of illogical question, but he says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel's a smart guy. He pleads the fifth. Is that the fifth you plead? I don't know which one to plead. You, you've who've been arrested. You know which one it is. I'm just kidding. Is it the fifth? Nobody wants to vote now? I think it's the fifth. Okay, thank you. James is unashamed. James says, yeah, it's the fifth, Pastor. He pleads the fifth. He says this. He says, Lord, thou knowest. The logical answer is no. They're dead. They're bones. We don't know anything about these bones. We don't know how they got there. We just know these bones are dry. And here's what God tells Isaiah, forgive me, Ezekiel to do. He says, I want you to prophesy to these bones. I want you to speak to them my words. And that's powerful. It's important. Ezekiel's going to tell them what God says. I don't know what that prophecy was. It doesn't show us. But he begins to prophesy to these bones, and the Bible says that the wind began to blow, and the bones began to shake, and they began to come together, and they began to stand up as fully formed skeletons, and flesh began to form around them, and hearts were made in them, and he breathed, the breath of God came upon them, and they became living, and, and it's this beautiful promise that's unfolding, and we don't have time to go all the way through chapter 37, but he promises them a new kingdom, and new hearts after his God, and a new city, and a, and a new coming king, and all of that, and so listen, Keep that in one hand, the background of Ezekiel's prophecy. We're going to open in chapter 37 in a second. Keep that in one hand, and on the other hand, let's kind of, let's kind of follow our context today. First day of 2023, right? My history of the new year, I normally come into the new year, like I said, with this in hand. I normally come in with a church calendar and a plan and optimista, optimism, and there's a certain level we think, or we used to think maybe, is a better way to say it, of predictability, and I've done that for years, but the problem with these plans is they're kind of based on fundamental assumptions that my life will continue, generally speaking, the way that it's continued. That, hey, listen, I'm healthy now. I'll be healthy next year. So I'm making plans with that in mind. Hey, I've got a certain amount of money now. I've got a certain job now. And so my, my plans are based off of those assumptions. They're kind of like just given assumptions. Like, hey, it's a gimme. I, I, I just assume it's all going to be the same. But like I said, the last few real years have really taught us, and I kind of think this is, a, at least in my context, the last few years of pastoring has kind of taught me that I get to the end of the year and my kind of fundamental assumptions have never remained intact. The things I thought would be were not. Now, that, and I'm not saying God isn't good. I'm saying that a lot of times the things I thought would be were better. The things I thought would be better maybe weren't even on the radar. And all those fundamental assumptions we kind of strut into the new year with thinking, yeah, I'm going to have the same job or I'm going to have a better job. Well, maybe you won't have any job. I'm going to have the same health or better health or maybe you won't have health. 
And we have all these fundamental assumptions that script is going to carry on the way that it's been written in the last few years. And Ezekiel is going to give us, by the inspiration of God, some potent advice on exactly how to handle this. How, how do we plan for a new year? How do we have anticipation for tomorrow in such a shaky, broken world? Right? It, it's always so funny, just in our context as a church, you might recognize, like, you know, we come together in a few weeks, we'll come together and make a, uh, a church budget. And that's always fun and scary. Try predicting the gas prices for an entire year for a church. Electricity for an entire year for a church. It's not always easy. So how do we go into this year as a family, as a Christian, as an individual with any level of hope? Well, like I said in chapter number 3, we're going to learn the heart of God toward His people. Not just for ancient Israel, but for His people today. And we're going to go back and sit, if you will, by the the riverbanks with Ezekiel and learn alongside him the heart of God toward His people. And this is important to know if you're out there and you think, well, these are promises made to Israel. Yes, absolutely. But here's the thing too. Every one of the promises in their full fulfillment includes the Gentiles. When he's talking about us being redeemed from sin, that's Jesus, okay? When he's talking about the unfolding of a final kingdom where he will be their God and he will be their people, hey, we're a part of that process as well. So keep those things in your mind, if you will. We're going to learn four things from Ezekiel 24, 2600 years ago that God taught him in these prophecies. We're going to open up in verse number 21. The first thing we're going to learn is that God is fully in charge of the time of his people. God is governing completely the time of his people. Now, God takes Ezekiel, like I said, to this valley of dry bones, and uh, he begins to tell them to preach. And like I said, all these things begin to happen. Um, And what he shows Ezekiel is that even though hope is lost, God can do the impossible. That's kind of the precedent. So let's pick up in verse 21. He says, and say unto them, he's already closed the vision, he's he's already seen it. Now God says to Ezekiel, go back to your little refugee camp. Go back to the Jews and tell them this. And say unto them, verse 21, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will. Now those are three very important words to pay attention to. In fact, they're words repeated throughout the prophecies of Ezekiel. God tells them, watch for this, for I will. God tells them, the days are coming when I will. And so he tells them, behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen. Whether they be gone, and, where, and will gather them on every side, and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king to them all. And they shall be no more two nations. Again, that was part of the problem of the day of Ezekiel prior to his captivity. Neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms anymore at all. Here's what he's saying specifically to the nation of Israel in this particular context. But he says, I am working right now to get them to where I am taking them. I am working toward the expected end that I have for you. He's saying, yes, you're in captivity. Yes, it doesn't make sense. Yes, everything you planned broke. But I'm telling you right now, I will do this. And what Ezekiel, what we kind of have to fill in is that this was a process. And we can stand on this side of Scripture and see exactly how God did it, how exactly God brought the decree to send them out and how he overthrew this government and overthrew this government. And God was orchestrating every step of the way to bring them back to their land. And again, this promise isn't even fully fulfilled in their return to the nation or to the land of Israel. This promise will be fulfilled when Jesus is the final king over all of humanity. And what he's telling them is, even though right now it feels like I'm not working, I'm doing something you can't see. 
I will bring you to this place. I will bring you to the place where my son has come and is final king over all of you. So let's kind of bring that into our day, 2023. What does that mean for me today? How is, how is that a part of God's plan for me? That means that my broken plans that I walked into last year with, when God changed them, that's okay. Because my broken plans are a part of his bigger plan. And what I thought would happen that didn't happen, God was doing something in spite of my plans. He was doing something different than my plans. That means that my waiting is his doing. That means that my breaking is a part of his process. That he is doing something beyond what I wanted done. That God is, he can take my calendar and throw it out completely. Why? Because he's doing something bigger than I can see. And Israel doesn't get it now. Ezekiel doesn't get it now. Perhaps he's just thinking of all the things he had planned out that won't be fulfilled on his birthday, thinking, man, all this stuff is supposed to be this way. And God says, no, 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 Ezekiel, hold on. You're going somewhere. I'm taking you somewhere. You don't see all the process, and Ezekiel doesn't even hear all the process. We just know that God was doing something bigger than him in the right now moments of Ezekiel's journey. And so this journey you and I are on, no matter how unpredictable, no matter how off script it is, just understand God is governing your life. And I don't know how that helps you, but it helps me. Because as I kind of, the position that God has kind of put me in and leading a church and trying to plan this and trying to plan that, a lot of times I want to have comfort in the plan. And God says, nope. And everything changes. And that's really hard for me to kind of hold on to personally. But you know what God's doing? Something I don't understand. Something I might not like but it's his doing. And he's bringing us somewhere. I told you in the beginning, it's this big arc that leads us from the broken kingdom into the restored kingdom. And whenever he changes the script, that's an okay thing. He is governing my life. And you know what that means to me then? That I am not a victim of the things that happen around me. Yeah, but this happened and I didn't. Oh, okay. God's governing my time. God is taking me from where I am to where he wants me to be. And that will be the final fullness of the kingdom. And he has every single plot along that journey prepared for me. I'm not a victim of life. I'm not a victim of the unforeseen. I'm not a victim of the people around me or the brokenness of my own nation. In Ezekiel's context, well, my context too. Look at all this happening in our nation. Some of you older generation have a hard time with this because it's not the America that you grew up with. And maybe it's not the America you fought for. And I am fully there with you. I didn't fight, but I understand that sentiment. But in Ezekiel's day, he was a part of the remnant. He was preparing to continue the sacrifices in Jerusalem. That was his plan, and God said, no, I have to judge those around you. But I'm still with you, Ezekiel, and I'm taking you somewhere. And I have a plan in all of this. And so we've got to understand that God has a plan that includes every bit of the things we, where's it at, that we didn't plan for. Because we're going somewhere. He's doing something. And the first thing we learn here in Ezekiel is that my life is governed by God. Number two, I love the text. It's gonna, we're just going to walk through it in verse number 23. We're going to learn that my failures can all be forgiven. This is so significant. Look at 23. Neither shall they. This is a part of God's plan for his people. Neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols. They were unclean people, and God has a plan to clean them up nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and I will, would you read it out loud? Cleanse them. So shall they be my people, and I will be their God. You know, God's long plan for humanity is that he would cleanse them in spite of their failures, that he would forgive us through the promise of Jesus Christ. How do you know this even includes us, pastor? We're Gentiles. You know, I get that. But who was it that cleansed humanity? The Savior of the world. And what humanity did he cleanse? Well, well for, for whose sins did he die? Well, the sins of the whole world. 
And listen, this prophecy was not fulfilled. Their sins were not cleansed when they got back to Jerusalem and finally were able to kill the first lamb. No, their sins were still well intact. This wasn't fulfilled when their temple was rebuilt and reinstituted, uh, even under Herod. That's not how that works. This reference of cleansing is the same reference the angel made to Joseph. He shall save his people from their sins. It's the same reference John the Baptist on the River Jordan says, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. I mentioned it earlier in the message, but their bondage was meant to drive them back to their God. Their lack of freedom in Babylon was meant to push them to their God. So it is with the world today. Their hopelessness is meant to make them look for hope. The darkness they experience, the deadness of their soul, the fact they can't find hope in alcohol and work isn't fulfilling and they're waking up and clocking in and going home and it's just none of it makes sense. Their bondage is meant the same way Israel's was, to drive them to the one who could cleanse them. Romans 8.28, I love this. God, God uses bondage to bring redemption. Romans 8.28 tells us this, that all things work together for good. To them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. You know that means the, the bad stuff too? Paul's journey was a part of God's plan. Paul's brokenness was all well within the understanding of God. And he came to him, chiefest of sinners, and Jesus cleansed him. He can cleanse you today. Our redemption can be had through Jesus. So here's kind of the the picture of it. My time is governed. My sins can be forgiven. And look at verse number 24. This is a little bit different than being governed. This is true for us. Not only is my life governed, but I am shepherded. By a loving God. This is a little different, right? You think of a governor, he can kind of sit in an office and make sure things happen the way they're supposed to. But a shepherd is down there with the sheep leading them. And so it's more, of a, more than a promise of just being in charge. It's a promise of being with. So look at verse 24. Look at the heart of God. And David, my servant, that's definitely a reference over the last few weeks to Jesus, the lineage through which Christ would come, shall be king over them. That's a big theme we've tracked as well. And they shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statues and do them, and they shall dwell in the land. You know, this is so, so neat to me. We, we, again, look at the Bible from a, new, from a New Testament understanding. We look at it from a very American understanding. But put yourself in the mind of a Jewish person, knowing the prophecies of Ezekiel, coming out of bondage, back into the promised land, and this, it's irreverent, uh, this man shows up. It's Jesus. And he makes this claim in John 10, 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. You realize for about 550 years, they've been waiting for the shepherd to show up. This is a direct claim of Christ's Messiahship. He's saying, I'm here, not just to govern you, but to walk with you. I'm here, not just to be in charge of you, but to come and guide you through the valley of the shadow of death. You will fear no evil, for I am with you. I am your shepherd. So big view, right? God governs it all. He will be our cleanser so that he will be our shepherd. Listen, when you were born, you were born under the governance of God. And yet he reached out, though you were chiefest of sinners, and he cleansed you through the blood of Jesus Christ if you've been saved. And now that you're saved, you're his sheep. And his sheep hear his voice, and they know him. And they follow him. And his desire is to lead you and to guide you, not just govern you. God governs the lost, but he leads the sheep. He governs the kings of the world but they will bow before him. But those who are his, who've been cleansed, they get to be his sheep. 
And he gives his life for his sheep. And his sheep know him. And they have fellowship with him. And he is present in their lives and protects them from the things they don't know. They couldn't possibly know. But a shepherd knows. And he's loving and he's leading and he's gentle. Listen, Christian, in our day, 2023, your job is not your shepherd. Your job shouldn't get to lead you, dictate you, protect you, or provide for you. I will say God will give you your job, but it's the shepherd who gave it. It's not money that should guide you. Your job doesn't give you the security of your life. So if God, the chief shepherd, decides to take it, then he decides to take it. It was never your shepherd. Regardless of the circumstances of the unfolding of this year, your shepherd will not change. Because your shepherd is not your nation or your, the political health of the, the people in this nation. They're not your shepherds. Now listen, they're leading your nation and Romans 13 has a lot to say about submitting to them. But the fact of the matter is, they're not your shepherd. They're not the ones leading and protecting and providing love for you. Your doctor is also not your shepherd. Because he may very well pronounce something we don't want. But thank God, the chief shepherd is also the great physician. And he's the one who walks with us. Jesus, gentle, present, leading. So then I'll ask this question. Will we submit to his plans this year? If he is our shepherd, (laughs) will we be his sheep? Will we follow? When he chooses, will we follow? Can he rewrite the script like he did to Ezekiel? Can he lead? Can you delight in his plans? And if you say, no, I don't think I can. I'm scared to let him have the book. I'm scared to let him write in here what I don't see. Or maybe you know, he's got to approve it through me first. Well, listen, number one, God's going to be king without you. He, we are all under the lordship of Jesus, whether you submit to it or not. But can I ask you, what is so untrustworthy about your shepherd that you would not allow him to unfold the plans he has for you? He is sovereign with or without you. Um, I heard this illustration recently. It was a great illustration about submitting to the sovereignty of God. Have you ever been on an airplane traveling with an unruly toddler or infant? Okay. Um, I don't do a lot of flying, but I have been on an airplane where some kids were getting loud and things of that nature. You know, here, here's kind of the picture. A parent could be taking that three-year-old to the happiest destination they could ever imagine. But the entire journey there, they're fighting it. If they could understand what was going on and how great this was going to be, they're going to get there fighting or not. They're going to get to the destination whether they have cooperated or not. And you and I are going to get to the destination. We're going to be formed into the image of Jesus, like it or not. We're just going to get to the other side perhaps, having not submitted, being a little bit embarrassed by our behavior on the plane. We're going to get to the end of life and think, man, I should have given him lordship in my 30s. I should have followed him as a teenager. Shouldn't have done what I did there. We're going to end up there. Praise God. The Father knows the destination. And the journey could be far more enjoyable if we just submit to it. Uh, We're going to get there anyway. He's in charge of it all. And we're in transit. But he's our shepherd. We're coming to our last one and we're done. I'm governed by this God who is above all. He has this cosmic view of everything that I, I don't perhaps have. My failures can be forgiven because he's a gracious savior. My life is shepherded by my savior. And then lastly, and we're just ending here, in all of this, I will not be forsaken. Look at verse 26 and 27 and we're done. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God. And they shall be my people. That is a direct reference that, yes, is promised to the people of Israel, but also to the whole world. That he would be our God. 
and we would be his people. And you can be sitting at the Chibar River, this irrigation ditch in the middle of the Iraqi desert, your whole life plan's shattered, and God says, hey, I'm doing something. My presence is with you. I'm not forsaking you. I'm not leaving you. I'm plotting with you. I'm your shepherd. I'm there. My sanctuary will be among you. I'm going to bring you to myself. I am in charge. This is not where you find hope or joy. So it's New Year's, and again, I hope I didn't discourage you. I hope that I've encouraged you to recognize where hope does come from. The thing about a God who's in charge of it all is this. He cannot be governed, and that's hard. A God overall is a God you are not in charge of, and that's a hard God to trust sometimes because if I give him autonomy, he gets to do what he wants. Let me fix that. Give him autonomy or not. He gets to do what he wants. We can enjoy the journey knowing that he's our shepherd and that he loves us and that he's working something so much bigger than we can see or feel or even understand. Not the half has been told. But someday in heaven, he will be our God and we will be his people. What a blessing that is. Let's pray.